in a way, it kind of changed my perspective on Patreon from asking for charity to actually providing a service a little bit, um, in that it's like allowing someone to be hospitable to you. When I talk about YouTube channels capturing an internet niche, I often use Tales Foundry as an example. How did a life of unchecked creativity turn into a YouTube career? And how do you thrive out of a tremendously niche audience? I am Alex, and this is Genesis. Okay, so <laughs> I, I'm already curious about how you're going to answer this question. So when you meet someone new, and the question about work inevitably comes up, and people ask, what, you do, what do you do for a living? What's your go-to answer? Well, if I really want to flatter myself and kind of romanticize my career, I'll tell them I'm a writer. Uh, <laughs> and that's, that's mostly because that's what I've aspired to do for like my whole life when I was a kid. I dreamt of being a novelist and all that. And the path I found was a platform that was demonstrably successful for other people. Like I knew I watched it and consumed it and I knew people were making money off it. So I, I found that YouTube was the thing that I could do with my interests that would make it a sustainable path forward for me. Um, so realistically, if I wanted to tell them like what brought in the money, what made a career happen for me, I would say I'm a YouTuber. But uh, if I wanted to like get closer to where my passions lie, I would say writer. So it's it's a toss-up. It really depends on the situation and how I'm feeling about it. You say it depends on the situation, but it depends on how much the person understands the role of what a YouTuber does, or does it depend more on what you, you want to transmit at that moment? More like what I want to transmit at that moment. Like, if I were to... Um, tell someone from a generation that is not as familiar with like the business model um, of a YouTuber, of, of getting money from ad revenue of Patreon, all these things. I might just say, I'm a professional writer. I write content for a living. I do research on fiction, etc., etc. Um, and they might understand that a little better. They might get where my passions are. Whereas if I say I'm a YouTuber, all of a sudden, all the conversation is just informing them for the five billionth time about how it works, about where the money comes from, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> oh, yeah, been there so many times. <laughs> um, so let, let's start from the absolute beginning. Where were you born? I was born in Rochester, Minnesota, but I was there for like all of five minutes or something before my parents whisked me away to uh, Illinois in the Chicagoland area. Why was that, if, if I could ask? I think it was just timing. I think they were um, not expecting to have a child and they had been planning to leave for some years, scouting out areas and stuff. And then all of a sudden I came into an existence and that they weren't going to let that get in the way of their plans. So I came with them. <laughs> What sort of kid were you? How how early in your life will you say you started having any sort of enjoyment for literature? I was a big liar as a kid. I would lie incessantly about like everything. Um, I have a very profound or not, not profound, but like visceral memory of coming home from kindergarten one day and my mom asking me what we did in school. And I told her that the bookshelves opened up and we went through them and there was a big cave and we fought Godzilla inside of it. And <laughs> oh, that went places. Wow. <laughs> and my my dear long suffering mother, she was like, OK, yeah, that that sounds great. I'm glad you had such a fun time. She was never like, no, be be honest. Tell me what actually happened. She never like 
thought those fantasies down. So I was kind of allowed to daydream in this way for a long time. There came a point at which I had to reconcile myself with reality, but I think at an early age, that's where I began really loving to make stuff up, loving um, to imagine things, just having that background of fostering creativity, even if it's not, I guess, efficacious in the moment, if it's not going to help me right then and there describe what I did um, or help me to like improve myself as a blossoming mind. My mom was right there just along for the ride, enjoying it with me, liking what kind of zany things I could bring to the table. In school, what sort of kid were you? Were you sort of the... Because you already said that you had a thing for <laughs> making up your own reality. <laughs> but as you grew up, is this a thing that stuck with you? Were you the imaginative, creative kid growing up? Yeah, it had some weird effects. I think... As a kid, it both helped me to have friendships and isolated me quite a bit because a lot of other kids were more involved with like media and concrete things and they were able to be more in tune with uh, what was going on in the world. So they might have an inkling, even at that age, even in kindergarten up through like third or fourth grade, they might have an inkling about what famous people were doing or what politics were going on. Um, they might have shared interests in just popular media. I really didn't pay attention to any of that. I wasn't in tune with any of it because if I was spending time with someone at that age, we were playing make-believe. We were making stuff up. We were making art, whatever. That's, that's what I was interested in doing all through my early life. So it really wasn't conducive to developing very much socially. I, I got into a position in life where like, I'd have two to four good friends who really got the kind of fantasies I was involved with. Uh, to sketch a quick picture of this, I remember having a friend in about third grade, I think, who we had convinced ourselves aliens were real, and we would bring stories to each other every day in class where we'd be like, oh, I saw this thing here, I saw that thing there, and we'd draw pictures of it. I'd be like, I saw an alien in the window of this uh, newly constructed building, this development out here. And he'd be like, I saw one in my mom's bathroom and it like ran down the toilet or something like that. And then we'd like draw what our spaceship was going to be like to fight the aliens with. We'd spend the whole day working on this stuff. We did not care about class at all. We were just invested in being creative and doing this stuff. So that's that's kind of a sketch of how it affected me early, what what it was like socially to be this kind of person. Um, and it was that way up until around middle school when it became harder to find people like this. <laughs> yeah, okay. So <laughs> high school tends to be difficult for a lot <laughs> for <laughs> a lot of people not um not good at conforming, I guess. Uh did you have a difficult time in high school? I didn't go to high school. <laughs> I, uh, oh, wow. Okay, <laughs> tell me more. Yeah, so I, I say I began to have some social weirdness around middle school. It, it was mostly just that I didn't care about what they were doing in middle school. Like, nothing there held my attention. The social drama, the, the developing um, need to be, I guess, more integrated. I was not there. I was still trying to be creative. I, I knew what I wanted to do. I knew how I wanted to spend my time. And all the other stuff just felt like a waste. It felt like an accessory. It felt like I was kind of in 
prison with these people who didn't get me. And my mom, seeing this, um, did some research and figured out, I don't know if I, I should be saying all of this, but like she figured out um, some tricky maneuvering to get me into college early so that I wouldn't have to deal with middle school anymore. Cause she's like, well, if he's not developing here and not enjoying this, he could just go straight to gen ed in college and get virtually the same education from high school without the social trauma, um, which is true and maybe a more expensive path. But so I left middle school um, and I quote unquote homeschooled for like two years or something where I, I basically just like played with game development software and made art and stuff. And then I started general education at a local community college and I stayed there <laughs> For about six years and never got a degree. <laughs> okay, well, hold on. For for those of us that are not super familiar with how the the American schooling system works, what what age were you at the end of that middle school period? I must have been about fifteen, I think. Okay, so you so high school for you will have been everything after that, but before college, and you skip that, and you went to do then six years of community college. So what, that's that's such an interesting experience. I've never heard of anyone trying something like this. So what what did you do in those six years? Um, I mostly stumbled around not knowing what to do with, with the time I had there. There's this weird prevailing sense of intentional stagnation at community mm. colleges, or at least at that community college. It felt like it was split 50-50 between kids who were using it as a stall out not to grow up so they could just keep mm -hmm. going to classes and stuff and never have to you know pursue a career start paying their own bills and uh people who had gone a direction they didn't like in life and were trying to reset so we had people in my age group well no one was in my age group i was way too young but people more in like you know the the 17 to 23 range and then people in the 40 plus range there and not much in between because everyone in between would be like at a university or an internship or something like that. So it was kind of a very selective crowd there. It was uh, interesting to be among them. Yeah, so I was um, just trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I didn't fit into either crowd there. So I, for the first very long time, I, I didn't ever assimilate into a new social setting. So really all it turned into was just me in a weird academic isolation, trying out a bunch of different possible routes and realizing one after the other that either I didn't need to be in school to pursue it, such as in the case of any creative art I tried in school, um, or in the case of like nursing, which is a whole story unto itself, that I would be incredibly depressed if I didn't do anything with my creativity. And instead I, I did something much more, I mean, not that there's not like, creativeness in nursing and stuff like that, but uh, something more utilitarian, something more protocol-based, I guess. I realized um, school, academia, it was just not an environment conducive to what I wanted to do with my life. And it took me six years to get there, but eventually I did. I'm curious to ask what led to you exiting college without a degree. But before we get there, just so I can get the timeline right, at which point in your life did you start consuming YouTube content? At this point, was YouTube as a viewer a thing in your life? One attribute about my personality that I think is fairly defining is that I'm like not a fan of anything. I, I really don't have a knack for 
like realizing I'm interested in something and pursuing it at a deeper level. And YouTube is definitely one of those things where it's just like in the periphery of my life. I'll come across a video shared on a social media platform or something like that and watch it. There's YouTube videos that will come up while I'm on YouTube um, that I'll watch every now and then. And there are a couple channels that like were important to me probably developmentally, but I don't know if there was ever a period of my life where I was like really, really like into YouTube where I like cared about it as a platform. I think my relationship with it really was more that like a couple things I liked came up on there, a couple channels I liked, I ran into now and then. I kept that knowledge that, that those channels, those people could be successful there in the back of my mind as I developed my, my skill sets and uh, figured out what I wanted to do. Okay, let's head right into the end of it. And I will ask you if you never quite managed to make a, a, a decision of where to focus on, what led you to leaving community college then? I think a few things. Ultimately, I knew, like I said before, that academia just tended not to be a good place for me creatively because as much as I love to learn things and acquire information, it always feels like the curriculum, it feels like something I have to wade through to get to the little nuggets of gold I'm actually interested in. And then I have to do these long, intense uh, projects and, and homework every day and stuff, stuff I genuinely don't care about to prove something to someone uh, for a career that I probably won't need a degree for. Um, so ultimately, I just always knew it was not the right environment for me to be in. And there was that knowledge. But then there was also my interest in all these other spheres that was so natural to me. I could be at home studying game design. I could be at home writing. I could be making art. And that just came. That was easy. That was stuff I wanted to do all the time. And I, I saw practically that people had careers in these fields. So I was always like, what am I doing like with this long research project on the history of some particular part of Western civilization that I like, it's interesting, but that practically doesn't really mean that much to me. What am I, why am I doing this right now? With those two pressures, I, I already didn't really want to be there. I already knew I wanted to be somewhere else. And then on top of all of that, at some point you have to make a living. At some point you have to start, you know, making money and you have to leave the nest. And that really came to a head when I realized if I left academia, and I had all these creative ambitions and stuff, but I didn't have any career path with them. I would just be an artist in my mother's basement, which I didn't want. So at some point I sat down at the kitchen table with my mom and I was like, look, I know I have to get a real job. I know I have to do something that will actually be conducive to my life after home, my life after community college. So she took me in, I had a career aptitude test, and somewhere on the scoring, it was like writing, communication, entrepreneurship, and then medicine was somewhere in there. And she was like, oh, that's the one thing on here I can really see making money for you in the future. I did that. I think you probably have the personality profile for that, so you should try that. And uh, I did. And that was a nightmare. That was probably the thing <laughs> that galvanized me to actually make this 
a career to like make something out of the things I'm passionate about. But that's a whole other story. I could go on for probably two hours about the nursing experience. Can, can you give us the average version? Because I'm curious now. <laughs> Suffice to say, I discovered in the process that I'm a hypochondriac. Oh God. <laughs> maybe not the uh, maybe not the right place. So I unlocked a mania that I never knew I had which will probably follow me for the rest of my life, but it's okay because these things build character. Um, but, <laughs> but also, it was important for me to get a taste of what my life could be like if I didn't buckle down and figure out my career trajectory, figure out something practical to do with my passions. It, like The way I described it was, I saw my future melting away into fluorescent lights and white tiles and sneakers and scrubs. At the end of every class period, while I was beginning my nursing degree, I would cry. I would just like break down, you know, and it wasn't because nursing is that bad or it was that harsh. Um, the way my mom put it when I finally brought this to her, when we had that talk about dropping out, was that she could see my, my soul dying. And regardless of how you, you know, you view the spirit or if you're religious, um, there's a poetry to that that will probably follow me for the rest of my life. The, the part of me that matters to me was suddenly being pushed away so then I could get money. And it, it was just killing me. It was bad. So after having the epiphany of understanding yourself enough to know that that's not a road you should explore, what the hell did you do next? Well, we had that conversation. Um, it was a very difficult conversation, but I'm, I'm very lucky to have very understanding parents. I mean, they barely grilled me over this at all. They, they could see that it wasn't working. And these are the parents who took me out of middle school so that I could, you know, not have to go through something I obviously was not going to uh, benefit from. And they kind of allowed me to do the same thing with college. As soon as I dropped out, there was this pressure. There was a, a fire under my feet, so to speak, because I had to prove something. I had to prove that if I wasn't going to go to school, I was still going to go somewhere. I was going to make it in some way. I was going to be a productive adult. And, um, you know, YouTube, it hardly seems like a promise to someone in, um, well, actually, probably anyone anywhere. When you say, I'm going to be a YouTuber for a living to anyone for the first time, uh, they're probably skeptical and Rightfully so. That's an understatement right there. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's probably something all of us in this field have, have felt, have dealt with from time to time. So to start, I had to have something more practical. And the first entrepreneurial venture I ever had was face painting. I was a professional face painter for maybe three years or something like that. I didn't care for it that much. It was something I could do. It was kind of creative. I could do it on my own terms. And hey, if you can book the time, if you can get people actually to pay you to come to their parties, entertainers make good money. They, they can make like $100 to $120 an hour to come out and paint faces. Um, and my brother was a balloon twister, so kind of a circus family going on. But I learned from him that that was a thing you could do. You could just offer a service. And if there are people who want it, you can make money that way. So I had that. I had the tools for it. And I was like, look, I'll drop out. I'll start doing this. I'll make money. And then in the meantime, I'll do YouTube. I never painted a single face after I dropped out. <laughs> <laughs> and this was because I had already prototyped the first Tail Foundry video. And I was so 
pleased with the turnout and everyone I showed it to was so impressed with like the the product that I just I, I felt like it was a sure thing if I just got it in front of enough eyes. So for about two, two and a half years, that's what I did. I just focused on making content. My parents, I think, were willing to go along with that, even though I wasn't pursuing the, the course they had agreed to. They were willing to go along with that because they could see that I was like really dedicated to the work. And it was it was an unhealthy amount of work at first, I think. I was so dedicated to proving something. I was so afraid of the specter of the fluorescent lights and the white tile floors and the scrubs that I... I would spend like nine hours a day working on YouTube videos. I wouldn't leave the home. And on top of all of that, I was freshly traumatized from the nursing uh, venture with my hypochondriasis. So I thought I was dying all the time. So there were all these like weird pressures on me in the first two years of the development of my channel that I just felt like I had to do it. Like I had to work as often as I could, as much as I could to make this thing happen. Luckily, it did. I don't know how it would have gone if it didn't, but I, I kind of had that conviction from the start that it just had to. You said you, you hit the uh, the ground running and you already had like conceptualized what you were going to do with your channel from like a very early stage. My question is, where did that inspiration came from? I think it's just a confluence of, of different influences in my life. Because up to that point, I think people kind of knew me as like an indolent dreamer. Like I was someone who would always have a new idea. I'd, I'd bring it to them and be like, look, look, here's a thing I'm going to make. Here's a book I want to write. Here's a game I've planned. And what they knew was that story would end in me just never finishing it or like never even starting it, just concepting it. I had so many of these things. And for every project I tried to pursue, I would acquire some amount of skill. So like, I wanted to make a game. So I found Game Maker and I joined a game making community. And for like several years, three or four years, I was really deep into that. And I learned a lot about like animation in the process and a, a bit about sound design and uh, some stuff about like, <laughs> like file organization on a computer, you know, things that are just like important to have a grasp of at some point in the process. And then I, I tried writing. I wanted to be a novelist. Um, I entered competitions for it. I tried animation separately. I got Flash. I tested that out. I took some classes during my six years in community college. Um, so all of these different things slowly just built up to a confluence of interests that when the time came, I was like, I can do something with all of these. Um, all the, the skills are kind of there. Really, all I need to learn now is how to use Premiere Pro and After Effects to put it all into a video. Um, and that's essentially where Tail Foundry came from. Uh, that and some other things as well, some other intentions with like making a niche and things like that. But uh, really the reason I was so easily able to start was because I had spent so long on so many other things. It wasn't like from nowhere. I was like, all right, I need a YouTube channel. Let's just figure everything out here and now. Wow. So you had been experimenting with so many ideas of places to exert your creativity from books to video games that YouTube to you felt just like just another place to try this out. It's just a place where you actually did it and it worked out. Did I got that right? 
yeah, that's that's pretty much it. And it's very interesting when this comes up because I think some other YouTubers I've talked to who have more, um, for lack of a better word, respect for the platform, <laughs> who were more eager to become like YouTubers, I'll talk to them about it and they'll kind of be like at a loss for how to respond to someone who views the platform in so utilitarian a light. It almost feels like right. arrogance or something like that, you know? No, no, in interesting. Okay, so you were very proud with your first video, which, by the way, it's a rarity. Like, I, I think most people are pretty ashamed of the first things they put out there. I'm digging through your the, the earliest part of your channels now because I, had, I honestly hadn't checked that back before. What was the video about? What was the process of creating or crafting that? Well, first off, I was proud at the time. <laughs> <laughs> Important distinction. Yeah, I uh, I look back now and I'm like, what, what is this? I didn't really know what Tale Foundry was going to be specifically. I knew I loved fiction, storytelling. I had a character design for the avatar of the show, the, the host. I had a general feel for the kind of thing I wanted to be in the videos and how to deliver it, but the actual substance of the content, what the niche was going to be that I carved out, I wasn't actually sure about. So the first videos are kind of field-burning content where I just... It was stuff that I wasn't passionate about. There was I was kind of like, oh, this is an interesting factoid, whatever. I'll make a video to as a proof of concept to prove that mm -hmm. I can actually do this. So the first two videos are oddly about the Southport Sockmen and a guy named Mike the Durable. The Southport Sockmen is a weird little story about two guys who stole 10,000 socks from their community, kind of fetishists, and... Mike the Durable is about kind of a modern Rasputin, a guy who people tried to kill multiple, multiple times and failed every time. I cannot tell you why I chose that as pilot content. <laughs> I was just like, oh, these are interesting stories. It's a channel about storytelling. Eh, okay. So they're not on the channel anymore because they're such a hard fit um, with the rest of the content. And I just, I don't think they're like in the spirit of it quite, but they were good pilots. I could show these weird kind of little stories to anyone and they'd be like oh but yeah that's yeah i'd watch another of those you know one thing is the reception you get from like friends or family where you start showing what you're working on now another thing is what happens when you actually upload these things so how is the reception online to your first creations it wasn't <laughs> there was nothing <laughs> i mean this is what you experience when you first make a youtube channel right like the only subscribers yep. are you you count as one and then your mother or whoever else you show the thing to to start um so these first videos were really just for me like i say as a proof of concept um and to validate that i wasn't crazy about this idea that if i made these there would be people out there who wanted to watch them and i think it's important looking back I think there's kind of a weird subconscious method to my selection of these things where if I had made really niche videos about like writing, um, like, like writing tips and tricks or whatever, or like a very particular genre of fiction, and I had shown those people in my immediate circles back then, none of them are writers. None of them would have cared about this stuff. So making this stuff that doesn't fit with my content now just to test it out I was able to gauge interest a little bit better, I think, to see whether if it's a topic people could potentially be interested in, whether the delivery will work. Um, so I was able to get that pretty early on, but it wasn't until year two that I think I had any 
significant following. I think I didn't hit a thousand subscribers until a little more than a year of making content. So I got that brings two questions. The first one is what kept you going during those two years? And the second is when did, did things started like turning for the best? When did uh, when did you feel you started finding an audience? So I mentioned before that when I first started, I was freshly traumatized by trying to become a nurse and I had this fire under my feet to make something happen. So I was this weird shut-in hermit crazy about Tail Foundry and YouTube, and it was literally all I would think or talk about. And I was like starving myself, just working too much. I was working till like three in the morning and waking up at like one in the afternoon, which oh, I'm actually on that schedule again right now, but that's beside the point. So I was not in a very good place, but I was in a very productive place, constantly burned out pretty much. So I do not recommend this approach to anybody, but during that first two years, that fever dream experience where I was, I thought I was like dying because I was so obsessed with my symptoms and stuff and I really had to make this thing. It really was kind of a weird symbiosis. Like I feel like Tail Foundry is what kept me alive during those years. And that sounds a little melodramatic, but for the psychological place I was in it, I really think it was important to have something that occupied me, that, that made me feel a sense of purpose in life that I wasn't feeling before. Um, especially when every day you wake up and think like, is this it? Is this the day that I'm, you know, that I'm going to discover that I have cancer or something like that? Ridiculous notions, but they, they really fill you up and make you very pessimistic about reality. So Tail Foundry, just the process of working on it, of feeling like I was making something significant that would turn into something in the future. I think there's something psychologically therapeutic about that process. In fact, I feel like I've seen with all of my friends who have gone into creative fields and started to buckle down and focus on something and produce something that had a like a, a goal that wasn't just them making things, that was them making things like for a reason, for a product. In all of them, I tend to see this kind of confidence welling up in them. And I, I had a little bit of that myself as well. That's kind of what kept me going through all of that through the magic of Tail Foundry just having prospects for me for the future, I was able to stick around until about year two. And then somewhere, I'm not sure if it was year one or year two, somewhere in the process, I was like, okay, I'm not getting views on these videos, so I can't just make them, I also have to market them. That's going to be a significant thing if this is going to be successful in the way, you know, I'm, I'm banking on. So I was like, how have I seen YouTubers be successful? Well, they'll, they'll do collabs. That makes sense to me. If there's a YouTuber with 50,000 subscribers and they show off my content, of course I'll get subscribers and then they'll watch and then the algorithm will see me and blah, blah, blah. Kind of this fantasy I built up about how it works. And I will say something that reinforced it was that um, one of my earlier videos, it was on Game of Thrones, I, I really shilled myself out. I went to all kinds of creators in the Game of Thrones sphere um, just asking incessantly for collaborations. And I did get one. And I want to give a shout out to um, Val from Because Geek, because in that very early period, she promoted Tail Foundry's content and didn't like ask anything in return. It was just a very simple little cross promotion. Some of you know, I recently got featured in a Game of Thrones video by the channel Tail Foundry. If you're into writing and storytelling about fantasy and fiction and nerdy things, you should really check them out. 
They've only been around for a little bit, but the quality of their videos is awesome. I got my first thousand subscribers from her. And there's this thing you experience when that happens for the first time. When you see that little influx, you feel this sense of validation. It's like actualizing. It proves to you that you're not crazy, that all the people who are skeptical about you making a living off YouTube are just skeptical and not actually right, you know? So that was a really significant thing. And I think that was the first look I had at what it would feel like to kind of get there, you know? Mm -hmm. Which should not be a surprise to you that uh, during the recording of this podcast, I have heard a lot of stories for people going through that very first exposure. And uh, after sharing it so many times, uh, the analogy, having experienced this myself, the analogy that most people resonate with, it's it's like being high. It's it's like being on drugs <laughs> for the first time, and it's and it's a sensation that you have never experienced before. And some people burn themselves out chasing this this feeling and trying to recreate it for the first time. But it's but I like the way you put it because it's not just the dopamine rush of the attention, but the validation of oh yes, this this actually works. I was not crazy all this time. Like I actually have a chance at this. So okay, that 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 was your that energized you. And what happened next? Well, I think that was the first significant proof that the channel could work. And that really, like, I was in this weird kaleidoscopic fever dream state making videos until three in the morning and, like, going way too hard. It, totally unsustainable. But that gave me a second wind to keep being that way. So for the next year or so, um, I, I continued to work that hard. And I was very lucky around, I think, the second year, I had my second big breakthrough. And this time it was not from a cross promotion. So this was where I learned that you didn't have to do that, that the algorithm is actually watching and actually interested. You just have to hit the right keywords at the right time. You have to hook the trend while it's still moving by. So like, I think the topic was, it was Irish mythology. And I, I didn't know that that would be successful. I had no inkling that would be successful. I was just like, well, it's either this or Magic the Gathering. That's what I'm interested in right now. So I don't know. I, I feel like there's more general appeal for just talking about myth. Turns out there was. I made this video and I think I went from 6,000 subscribers to 30,000 subscribers in oh, wow. a matter of like a week or two. So yeah, that, that was my big like meteoric rise kind of thing. And I will say like, yeah, I have been kind of chasing that ever since. I have been like <laughs> waiting for the second time I'll release a video that'll just do that well. But but back then, I don't know, I just felt like everything was okay now. Everything was going to be okay. I I was no longer floundering. I was no longer needing to find some back door into YouTube through collaborations or whatever. I really, really knew that if I just kept on making good videos, eventually YouTube would find them, eventually this would happen. So it, it kind of gave me the wherewithal to just keep on trucking without these weird secondary pretenses and stuff. Although pretenses, that's something we'll have to talk about because I'm still struggling with that to this day. It's one of the most significant parts of my career. But I, I think that was the, the biggest, like second major stepping stone on my path. At what point did it become sustainable? Because I, I think 
many of us are familiar with the first year or two where you're living off your savings and working every waking hour just trying to make this thing work. But at some point, it's... Uh, it starts paying for things and you start being able to find a way of making it sustainable. When when did that happen for you? I'll split it up into sustainability and livability because I think the point at which the channel became sustainable unto itself without me as a person needing to eat or whatever, um, where I was just through the money the show made able to afford everything I needed to make the show. I think that happened right around the time of that Irish mythology video. Then I released another series of videos that was pretty popular um, about Junji Ito, the horror manga artist. And I opened a Patreon around that time. Uh-huh. And that was what made it. Yeah, th- that's got to be a very familiar part of the journey. The point at which you open yourself to crowdfunding and the crowd, the people who love these videos, express how much they want more how much they want it to be sustainable by making it sustainable. And that's what happened for Tail Foundry. So I think in the first year that we had the Patreon open, we were probably floating around like $300 or something like that. And as a result, I was able to like not have to work a part-time job or anything to pay for the costs of running the channel. Um, So back then, I would say the channel was sustainable, but I wasn't making a living wage off of it. Nothing even close to that. In fact, I would say I didn't really start making that kind of money until pretty much this year. <laughs> wow, that that was a long, long road to get there. I think it's interesting to talk about Patreon a little bit, just because I'm, I'm curious to hear your opinion on how you made that grow and work. Because in often, and I can say this with a lot of confidence, often when I talk to people about what I think are the channels that have more future in YouTube, I tend to focus a lot on channels that are are very known in a specific niche. And Tales Foundry is an example that I bring up very, very often. And a lot of these channels, Patreon is a tool that is extremely important, extremely useful, and extremely common for niche channels to be sustainable. So after... It's clearly been a long road. So what what have you learned through the, the about the art of crowdfunding? Patreon is a precarious space for any creator with a with a super ego, with a conscience. Uh, <laughs> because like what you're doing is saying, "Hey, I am here ready to receive money if you are willing to give it." And there's a confidence that requires that a lot of creators don't have. When you spend years of your life being told that your dreams are a long shot, that making money with your art is something you would be incredibly lucky to do, one in a million, like winning the lottery or something like that, there's this kind of stigma that comes with it where it feels like, well, if someone's going to give you money for it, you would better be really giving them something worthwhile if you're going to be asking for money in return, because that's kind of the stigma around art. It's not a very utilitarian thing. It's kind of a luxury. It's kind of something nobody needs. It's something people might want from time to time. So you're lucky to get pay for a product, let alone for virtually nothing, let alone for something that is free. So for a lot of artists coming to Patreon, I think it's very hard to get past that mental hurdle. And it was for me for a long time too. It didn't stop me from opening a Patreon, but it kept me overextending into Patreon. I was constantly like 
coming up with new rewards, bigger rewards, better rewards. I was trying to be so involved and so engaged in a way that was actually cutting into my work time. It was bad for the product that people wanted, or, or not even the product, but the experience that people wanted. They were paying so that Tail Foundry could survive, so that I could make more of it. And because I was so nervous about receiving that money, I was making less of it. So it was kind of a kind of a bad relationship, stunted by my preconceptions about what I should be doing, what I should be allowed to do, what's expected of me. And that went on for a very long time. I think it even got so bad that I tried to redesign the Patreon reward system to be able to offer more. I had like a catalog of additional rewards and a whole like infographic about them and how to unlock them and stuff. And the weird thing about Patreon, I'm not sure if this is everyone's experience, but I know several other creators have experienced this as well. The weird thing is, even if you offer great rewards, if people aren't coming for a product, if you're not saying, I'm basically using this as an e-store, often they won't even claim rewards that are given to them. If they're there just to support you because they love what you're doing, you will be shocked, probably, by how often they just leave the rewards sitting. And that's what happened to me. I designed this whole big thing to offer them more, and they never claimed anything, which told me that I was kind of wasting my effort. Um, so eventually, I slowly pared down what I was offering on Patreon so that I'd be more able to focus on the content. But the big psychological takeaway for me, after going through the process of being like, oh, these are just the wrong rewards, oh, how do I make them more attractive? I kind of finally was like, what is it about this that is fundamentally not working for them? Why, why don't they care? And after asking them, on many occasions, it turned out the way they viewed themselves was very differently from the way I viewed them. Because I viewed them as beneficent investors, people who would come down and uh, give me money to make a thing, and if I step out of line, I might lose them or something. But they didn't view it that way at all. They viewed it more like a collaboration. They saw it more like, this is somebody making something I'm passionate about, and I'm working this nine to five that maybe I don't love, and life is hard, uh, maybe I have like health problems or something like that. This distracts me. This fills my world with joy and passion. I want to feel like I'm a part of it. So giving money to it helps feel like you've, you've helped it to live, you know? So it's like a wave into the creative space for them. And in a way, it kind of changed my perspective on Patreon from asking for charity to actually providing a service a little bit um, in that it's like allowing someone to be hospitable to you, going to their house when they offer you a cup of water or something like that. Allowing them to do that is a service to them, even though it's portrayed as a service to you. Patreon is kind of the same way. You're allowing people to be involved in the life of this thing you're making. And yes, monetarily speaking, they are giving you money, but to them, it's not a transaction that way. It's not a product they're hoping to receive. It's something passionate to do with cold money, you know? <laughs> yeah, the, the relationship was different to what you imagined. Would you say Patreon was the main contributor to you finding your stability as a creator? I would say, yeah. In the early years, Patreon was the thing that made Tail Foundry possible. And that's something we say in our Patreon outros and stuff. Thank you for making this possible. But it really is true. Like, 
I think from a financial perspective, it was really important in terms of making the show sustainable. Even if I wasn't making a living off the Patreon income, I was able to justify the expenses that went into the show um, and like pay an artist to help me at some point and then go on to pay an editor, go on to pay um, a sound designer and stuff because Tail Foundry is a fairly highly produced show. So mm -hmm. um, that stuff was really important. But beyond that, just feeling like Tail Foundry was worth it to so many people, that they were passionate enough about it to want to translate their hard hours of work into support for Tail Foundry, it gave me an additional passion for Tail Foundry. It, it made me feel like I wasn't alone in my perception of it, you know? So it's kind of like a, a third wave of validation. The first one came from having a thousand subscribers and knowing that I wasn't crazy pursuing this. The second one was getting that huge first influx from the algorithm that showed me that the algorithm could work and I didn't have to backdoor my way in. And then this third one came from people being pretty much as passionate as I am about the project, not just being casual viewers, not adding to my sub base, but showing that they are invested in it the way I am. You mentioned before off air, before we recorded, that your creative process involves immersing yourself completely in the topic for a tremendous amount of time. How How is your, now that you have become a professional, so to speak, at doing YouTube, what is your creative process to get those videos going? This is a topic that is very close to me right now because I'm still kind of figuring it out and I feel like I finally cracked a healthy outlook on this. Like I said early on, I was kind of in a kaleidoscopic fever dream of production for the first two years of Tail Foundry. That was not sustainable. You know, at some point I had to relent a little bit. I had to make content in a healthier fashion. But it wasn't just that. It wasn't just those circumstances that kind of hampered my ability to make the show. Part of it was preconceptions about what I want to do, what I should do, pretenses about how it would be perceived. Early on, you kind of have to guess. You kind of have to think like, what what will work? What will resonate? What will make this show memorable? And what will make people passionate about it? And I didn't know the answers to that early on. So I, I thought I had to do so much to engage people. And the plan of action from the start was, okay, I'm not just going to make a video. I'm going to do three videos. I'm going to do a mini series about a topic and prove to them at the end that what I'm saying is true by putting it into practice. So the idea was I would find a topic, break it down, find the thing that makes it so valuable to me, the thing I love about it, and then write an original piece of short fiction that incorporated everything from the first two videos. So there was this kind of arc over the series of these three. And in theory, that sounds pretty cool. That sounds like an awesome project. But what I found for the first four years of Tail Foundry was that it was exhausting. That is an insane amount to put on yourself. Because I was doing three videos, it always felt like it had to be representative of the entire topic. Like if I'm gonna dedicate three videos to this, I better really do this thing justice. So I felt like instead of just being like, oh, here's the thing I like, here's the thing I'm passionate about, I felt like I was making Tail Foundry's definitive version of this topic, which is insane. It felt like I was trying to write a master's thesis for every subject. <laughs> and it even occurred to other people that I brought onto the show, other writers that experimented on the show with me. They were like, what are you, why are you doing this? Why don't you like, you could make this so much more easy on yourself. And on top of that, 
short fiction just doesn't really work on YouTube too well. It's it's not the right platform for it. Um, just reading your own writing. So all these things together made it kind of a slog for the first four years to the point where like, <laughs> I think in 2019, I made two videos, two or three videos because I was so entrenched in these topics, trying to do them so right. And I realized at the end of 2019, I, I can't, I can't have a sustainable show and make three videos in a year. So, so what's your credit process now? Like how do you, how have you managed to, well, I wouldn't say fix that because as you said, this is a work in progress, but what, what have you done since then to make it better? I think one of the best things you can learn about any creative process is to fail is <laughs> to accept when things are not working or they're bad for you or they're bad for your health and be able to course correct. Uh, a mantra I really love, and this comes from Extra Credits, which was kind of an instrumental channel for me in my early YouTube years. I, I was never like a big consumer of content on YouTube, but Extra Credits was one of the few shows I really did watch a lot of. And um, they had a video that they put out about failing faster. And I have a poster about it somewhere, but basically the crux of it is that like, your ideas can't be precious, your ego can't need protecting. Every attempt is an opportunity to get it right. So the more often you allow yourself to try and fail, the more chances you have to actually get there. And this is where I am now in my career. I've I've tried this thing for like four years and finally accepted that, you know, it's not an abject failure. People like it, but it's not doing what I need it to do. And finally accepting that, stopping making the short fiction, stopping doing all these things that I thought I had such realistic, compelling reasons to do. I thought that was what made my content valuable. It opened me up to this world of possibility. Now that I'm able to just say no to things, to myself. Now I find I'm so much more passionate and so much more interested in the work. Now I let myself just do a little topic, like the forthcoming video I'm about to make is about my neighbor Totoro and how the world of children is kind of a, a magical thing and how Hayao Miyazaki uh, taps into that. And I would never have been able to make that video under my past creative process because it was so monumental. I would have had to do a video about Miyazaki himself and all the work he, he's made in the past, and I've, I would have had to look at his entire oeuvre, and it would have been this huge production. Now I can just kind of, look how cute this is, you know, I can make one video about it and, and be happy and enjoy that. So I, I find being able to say no to myself is so freeing, and that's that's been the big revelation for me lately. Wow, that actually sounds great. I'm, I'm very, very, very glad to hear that. So knowing that, what would you see is the future for Tales Foundry? Well, what is what are you excited about that could happen or you want it to happen this year? Well, I'm beginning to see that livable status I was talking about before, how I like divided up into the channel being sustainable and my ability to make a living off it. I'm finally kind of there. And that's in part because I'm finally making enough content to be able to have regular sponsors on the show and stuff. That's a huge factor in being able to pay for, you know, the apartment I'm living in now and putting food on the table and stuff. So I'm finally able to have my own life, not just live in my parents' house and and work myself to death on Tail Foundry videos. And that's in part because of this creative process. But the future this change has opened up is just that I can, I feel like I can do virtually any topic within my niche that I want to. And I feel like I'm really exploring my niche rather than just 
entrapping myself by uh, a, a set of expectations, a protocol for how the content should come out. And on top of that, because my relationship with the craft has become so much healthier, I find I'm like, I'm not burning out all the time. I can make three videos a month instead of one video every third month, which was about the as much as I could do this time last year. So the future of Tail Foundry just looks more diverse. It looks, in, in starker terms, more profitable. But to me, profits really translate to, I guess prolificness. <laughs> the ability to do more um, is it's what more money means to me. So now, like now I can expand my team. Now I have an editor who's helping me make videos so the videos come out faster. Maybe in the future, as we make more, um, we'll be able to have like a second artist. Maybe we'll be able to do more animation. A big thing that people are really excited about with Tail Foundry cranking out more videos and being able to be more regular, there's lore to Tail Foundry. You have this robot host who's animated, you have these cute little characters, but I have not been able to explore it because it's way too much to do a compelling topic and also have a story happening in the background with animated characters. I just, there's no way to do that without a second animation person here. So that's the thing I am most excited about in Tail Foundry's immediate future in like the next two years, expanding kind of the meta fiction of it, giving the, the channel its second dimension that it's been pining for for a very, very long time. That's great. This has been a fascinating conversation. I have learned way more from this than, than I expected coming in. And there's already things uh, that I think are going to apply to my own creative process. So thank you f so much for uh, sharing this with me. Any any closing thoughts or stories that you wanted added in before we wrap this up? Um, I mean, I think if there's something to take away from my experience, like if you're a YouTuber listening to this or a prospective YouTuber, I think it's really important at some point in your career to be able to kill your darlings, to be able to say, I love this thing but either it's not healthy for me, it's not helping my art, it's harmful in some way, and I need to say goodbye to it. So whether that's something in your process, like a restriction you've imposed upon yourself, like having to make an hour-long video every time instead of just making a 10-minute video, or conversely, restricting yourself to 10-minute videos when you would rather be making an hour-long video, if these things are having a negative impact on you, and the success of the thing you're trying to make, the sooner you learn to let go of them, I think the happier you'll be, and I think the better your art will turn out. And it might feel like a betrayal at first. You might feel like I'm saying no to this grand vision I have, but I think in the end, the art will thank you for being able to do that for it. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much for this. Thank you. This is awesome. Uh, this is a, a part of my life that is very hard to find opportunities to talk about. So I love the, the chance to just ramble for however long it's been about this. <laughs>